Welcome to Look-See, the podcast for the art curious in Richmond and beyond. I'm Paige Goodpasture. Growing up in civil rights Richmond, a community remembers, is a new exhibition organized by University of Richmond Museums in collaboration with guest curator Ashley Kistler. The show pairs oral histories with photographic portraits of 30 Richmond residents whose lives were altered by their experiences as children and youth during the civil rights movement. The exhibition showcases vibrant, large-scale portraits created by Richmond-based visual journalist Brian Palmer. They portray 30 Richmonders who participated in different ways in the civil rights movement in Richmond, many of them as children. The portraits are a collaboration between photographer and sitter. Each person has clearly chosen the way in which he or she wants to be seen, and a visitor to the galleries cannot dismiss these powerful people and their courage and determination. Each portrait is accompanied by excerpts from interviews conducted by Laura Browder, U of R's Tyler and Alice Haynes Professor of American Studies, as she spoke with participants about their personal experiences. Growing up in civil rights Richmond shines a beautiful light on the importance of honest conversations about the ways in which race shapes our experiences. Through these portraits and the accompanying stories, the participants are reclaiming African-American history and then connecting it to the rest of Richmond history in innovative and wonderful ways. I spoke with three of the show's collaborators, Ashley Kistler, Laura Browder, and Brian Palmer at the University of Richmond Museums. I'm here at the Harnett Museum of Art at the University of Richmond's Maudlin Center with Laura Browder, who is the oral historian for this project and also the Tyler and Alice Haynes Professor of American Studies at the University of Richmond, and Richmond-based photographer and visual journalist Brian Palmer, and also Ashley Kistler, who guest curated this exhibition. Thanks to you all for being here today. So I wanted to get our conversation started just by talking a little bit about the genesis of this project and how it came to be. Would anyone like to start with that? This is Ashley. This project grew out of Laura's research. So I had been working with my students on creating a documentary drama about school desegregation at With High School. And as part of that, Uh, I was interested in having WITH alums from the busing era come in and share their stories with my students. And we had one day when 20 of them or more arrived in my classroom, about half of them white, half of them black. They hadn't seen one another, most of them, in 40 years. And they were talking about their experiences of being in the same place at the same time, but having completely different experiences. So there was a lot of laughter and some tears and a lot of singing, actually. And uh, Ashley and I saw one another shortly after that, and I, I told her how fascinating these interviews had been and how I was thinking about creating a young adult book about people who were active in the civil rights movement as kids. And Ashley came back and suggested an exhibition instead. And that's how this whole thing got started. Brian, at what point did these smart ladies bring you into the project? About two years ago, we first started talking. Two years ago, May, when we had the reception here. Yes. 
I guess we can talk more about how you two found your way to me, but once you did find your way to me, I was honored to be a part of this because I'd been documenting the restoration of East End Cemetery and also digging into the history because we, we see the physical reclamation of that historic site as only one part of a larger reclamation that's needed. There's also the, the narrative and the historical reclamation. What I really appreciated from Ashley and Laura about how the, they were upfront about the issue of race. We're dealing with race head on, and that's not something that a lot of people can do. So as an African-American, I thought, this is a team I want to be on. And then to do this particular work, I benefited from the tremendous amount of raw material, not so raw material, that Laura had generated. So before going out and photographing these people, I would go through and try and uh, identify the most important places to this person, have a discussion with him. So, Brian, can you talk a little bit more about the Easton Cemetery Project? Because that's such a, a central part of what you are currently doing and, and how that came about and, and what is happening there now and, and what your roles are there. I have been known to go on and on about that, so I'll try and be succinct. My wife Erin and I wound up at East End Cemetery initially just to gather B-roll video for another project for a documentary we're still working on. That documentary centered on reclaiming African-American history, but we were doing it mostly with our heads in archives and stuff. Erin immediately got it that this was an opportunity to do it in a hands-on way. She was down on the ground with this group of Boy Scouts pulling vines off of plots and helping them discover headstones and all that sort of stuff. And I didn't get it until I actually put my recorder down and started doing the same thing. So when Ashley and Laura came to me, I saw this as an extension of that. That history that we're helping to reclaim from the turn of the 19th, 20th century we know that there are people pictured in this room with direct connections to the people laid to rest there. So to me, it was a gift. East End Cemetery is an African-American cemetery that was abandoned and unkempt for many years, right? Yes, East End segregated cemetery founded in 1897 because as we all know, segregation followed African-American folks to the grave. So a community created this space and did what they could to maintain it as long as they could. Churches, fraternal organizations, employees groups, individual families. But Jim Crow really did a number on the African-American community, pulled people apart, forced some people to leave. And there was no public investment in these places. At the same time, Confederate cemeteries were getting money from the General Assembly, African-American cemeteries, including historic places like this, where enslaved people, people who had been born enslaved, they were very young, like Richard Tansel and Rosa Bowser, they had been born property. They were laid to rest here. Their descendants are laid to rest here. To us, it is, it is quite literally reclaiming that history and then connecting it to the rest of Richmond history in 
innovative and wonderful ways to look around this room and to see these people and to remember and understand that they played a role in this incredibly important period. Like, we talk all about massive resistance, but do we talk much about what happened after massive resistance? And do we talk about the people who basically helped break massive resistance? They're here. So for me, everything is, is, is really connected. How did you all connect with Brian? Well, I had volunteered at East End Cemetery. I was aware of Brian's work there, and I became very familiar with his photography. As a result, I loved Brian's work, and it seemed like a, a wonderful match, particularly since so many of the, the people pictured in this exhibition talked to me not just about their own lives, but about their families going back for generations. And I remember Zenoria Abdus Salam in particular talking about what it felt like to look at a record book and see her great-grandfather listed as property. And she said, you know, people think that slavery was something that happened a long time ago, but it really happened yesterday, and we're still feeling the effects of it. And because of that, I think there's a very, very organic connection between the work that we did here in this exhibition and the work that Brian and Aaron have been doing at East End Cemetery. It's clearly important to you when presenting this work to the public that the photographic documentation that goes along with it be as impactful as the stories. Well, it's absolutely vital because I see the portraits as being in dialogue with the text panels and also as enabling audience members, visitors to the exhibition, to have a kind of fully immersive, and if I can use this word, soulful experience. Where, you know, one of the things I really love about Brian's portraits here is that you really get such a deep sense of who that individual being portrayed is. You know, we've already seen people coming to visit the exhibition who themselves lived through the events that were described here but we're also seeing students and people who usually come and visit this museum space and are attached to the space itself. And I think it's fair to say that they're getting very different things out of the experience, but one can hope overlapping things as well. Ashley, as a curator, what value do you see in having an exhibition like this in an art museum? Well, certainly the photographic portraits in this show are art. <laughs> and I also have to un underscore how incredibly fortunate we were to enlist Brian's participation. It was not until the frame photographs entered this gallery, we laid them out, and they were installed where it really just sort of hit you full force how vibrant and vital these images are. And I think one of the most important aspects of them is that there is no way you can dismiss them. They pull you in immediately, and then the accompanying story or voice pulls you in even further, and then there is this rich dynamic that happens between your attention to the story and then back again to the image, and I just think it, it, it's really successful. Brian, 
You said that this project was a little bit difficult for you at mm -hmm. first. The images that are here in this room, it is clear that each of the people in the image has chosen how they want to be presented. And I know that as a photographer, that is not as easy as it looks. Yes. <laughs> so. And in fact, in some situations, after consulting with Ashley and looking through the pictures, we realized that I didn't get it on the first time. So I would go back. In terms of this being art, this being journalism, this being documentary, this is what I did. Generally, when I do portraits, I work fast because I work as a journalist, and I didn't want to do that here. I am very, very comfortable doing political-type work, even physical-type photography, uh, smashing my way into press conferences and things like that. I've, I've done a range of work, but I had to bring something different to this. And in fact, I brought to this the time and the respect that I had really brought to the East End project. I didn't photograph East End well, or at least with the depth that I wanted to the first times I visited in 2014 through 2015. I had to slow down, I had to learn, I had to relearn how to see light. I tell my students, that's our job, that's the first thing we do. You see light and then you figure out how to capture it as it reflects from your subject in the, in the way you want it to. I think I got lucky with the first set of portraits, but wasn't necessarily consistent, it wasn't necessarily developed yet, which just means that I had to work a lot harder, really at the beginning, trying to figure out what the aesthetic was going to be. And I knew in my head what I wanted. I wanted the people to be looking at me, not me looking you know, down at them, I'm tall, but I wanted to be on eye level with most people. I wanted to be close, and I wanted the pictures to be I wanted these portraits, these images, to be clear and straightforward because I want these people to be seen. That is my, my main goal. And when they're connected with their own words, when the images and the panels hit this space, that's when the power of the show truly came through to me. What Laura has done, the way that you've made history come alive for different generations, that's the key cross-racial, interfaith, multi-generational, making this history, this unsung, quasi-recorded history, making it available, accessible, but not dumbing it, watering it down for people. To be a part of that has been wonderful. I didn't really realize how wonderful this was until the opening. I was late, I messed up the time, but Everything was happening already. The people who uh, sat for the portraits were there. The energy, the tears, the dynamism, again, multi-generational, multi-faith, multi-everything. This space was alive. And that was, a, that was a group, that was a collaborative effort. This space was a really magical and marvelous place to be. So to be a part of that made me very happy. I talked to many people who were moved by being here, by being in the show, and I was just moved to see those reactions. I mean, to be 
clear, I was moved when I photographed each and every one of these people because based on what Laura had gathered, I had conversations with everyone here, and that added to my understanding and knowledge of Richmond and obviously to what some people, what they went through and what they triumphed over. And here they are, wonderful, powerful people, still active in their neighborhoods, still active in the city of Richmond, and um, I felt great. (laughs) (laughs) And so I wonder, I mean, each one of you, in, in each of your own unique ways, has been doing this work, the work of helping to make stories and people visible in ways that they haven't been before for a while. So I wonder, as you participate in a project like this, as you collaborate with each other and with each of these 30 people that are part of this project, what surprised you, even given your, you know, your experience now at doing many oral history projects, Laura, and, and many amazing exhibitions, and, and traveling all over the world as a visual journalist, Brian, and, and your work at East End Cemetery. And so what are you carrying with you now as part, as a result of this project? One thing that really surprised and moved me was the depth of connection within the black community in Richmond how strong that community had been for generations and generations. And also the sentiment that many people expressed that they felt that they had had upbringings where there was a nurturing community around them and people there to help them move beyond their community and do what they needed to do in their lives. And many participants here expressed a fear that the new generation coming up did not have that same nurturing community around them to help them out. And I found that very moving and also very upsetting to think about. Brian talked about and Ashley talked about the energy in the room on opening night. And one of the things about that energy was that there were so many people here who were interconnected and whose families had been interconnected for many, many generations. And I think that those connections are not often visible, especially to the white community in Richmond. You know, I hope that it helps us to see history in a new way. I think one of the things that's important about work like this is that today's students growing up get a very flattened out view of the civil rights movement. Rosa Parks as a simple seamstress who one day just felt like getting up from the back of the bus, which of course is completely untrue. Martin Luther King as a kind of plaster saint. And I think it's all of our hope that this exhibition can show how much more complex the movement was and people's experience was throughout the movement. Just to follow up on your comments, Laura, in our conversation overall, it underscores the importance, increasing importance, that storytelling has today as a means of recording history and really giving us a fuller picture. I mean, of course, it's been a long-time method for you, Laura, in your research and scholarship, but you know, it's only been recently 
and institutionally beyond the academic campus that people are recognizing the value and validity of this, whether it's you know the Virginia Foundation of Humanities, even the MacArthur Foundation has really focused on this as a methodology. Coming back to your, your other question, Paige, when I think back now that we've completed the project, one thing that just bowls me over is the willingness of these individuals to step forward and tell their stories. And particularly in you know, every instance, it deals with painful memories and really difficult subject matter. And I try to put myself in their place. And you know, I don't think I could ever share that very you know, intimate information. I mean, I think it takes incredible courage. Wow. Laura just did something that I find remarkable and also how I got involved in this in the first place, which is to speak honestly about how history is collected and remembered. And in doing so, naming race. There's so much temporizing about race to say black, to say white. It's just so difficult. So people are sort of meaninglessly polite. But she recognized that People's history is alive in families. African-American history is alive in churches. It's there. People have kept their stories alive. It's just that the larger conventional white narrative hasn't recognized it. So we're not necessarily pioneers or crusaders or anything like that. We're recognizing what's there, and we're breaking down the wall into that mainstream conventional narrative, which has spent a very long time ignoring those other stories. To shape perception and reality was the power of white folks in this city, in this country, in this southern part of the country. They got to define what mattered, what was reality, and it was very easy to shut out those other stories. Black folks had to understand that dominant narrative while trying to keep theirs alive. And now we're at the point where people are recognizing those narratives are of equal weight. And just because we've had a couple of injections of the heroic exemplary Negroes, Rosa Parks, who was a dedicated activist long before she sat down on that bus. She was like a pioneer with the NAACP, working with youth in, in a way that nobody else was doing. The old folks didn't get it. She got it. And she was an activist until the day she died. Do people know that? Do people know about our own Richmonders? Do they know about Reverend Robin Mines, who had guns fired at her home when she was a child because they were a black family with the gall to move into a largely white part of town? Do they know that? Is that part of the narrative? All of these stories matter, and they're all ours. This is our collective history. I don't think that we can all come together around progress until we all understand what everyone else's experience was. This is so important to break down the wall between these parallel narratives so that we can understand, I was going to say we can understand each other's narratives, but as you said, Brian, I think the black community has had to understand the white narrative for survival forever. And that, that dominant, I, I hesitate to say, white narrative, it was whitewashed, but it's always included African Americans, but in incredibly distorted ways. So you get to, again, distort and shape the pictures of other people, and you deny them the ability to speak, and then you claim their voice. So I feel that 
projects like this, forgive me, but they, they contribute to the draining of the swamp where that kind of power through ignorance can flourish. So it is erasure and it is violence and it is intimidation. And when we tell these stories that are there, when we treat this narrative as continuous, not these little sprinkles on the ice cream of white greatness, like, oh yeah, we've got a couple of great people too, isn't it? You know, Martin Luther King is just this, this plaster bust and no, 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 we have Bayard Rustin, we have Ella Baker, we have Septima Clark, we have Fannie Lou Hamer, we have Harriet Jacobs, we have on and on and on, and we can say that for Native American folks, get used to it. America is a complicated place and we will not accept people defining reality for us. We just won't. And all the people on these walls, I would add, yes. to that list. And what an important time to underscore all of these really, really potent points. Yes, because we're now living in a time where the President of the United States has reintroduced the kind of open white supremacist discourse that had been shoved under the carpet for several decades, and now it's back out in the open. I'm not saying that racism went away and he brought it back, but I think it's certainly true that many more people in the United States feel empowered to openly express racist thoughts and to perform racist actions that they might previously have kept more under wraps. One of the narratives that comes through very clearly is the violence of white supremacism that so many people in this gallery experience in the room we're sitting in. We have Robin Mines who had a cross burned on her lawn and as Brian said, had people shooting through her windows because her family moved into a previously all white neighborhood. And behind you, you have Carol Ray whose family had to leave town and had a cross burned on their lawn because as a white high school student, she was dating a black high school student. In one way or another, every person in this gallery has been affected by the violence of white supremacism. And I think that's something that it is all too easy for white America in particular to forget that racial inequality and Jim Crow was consistently enforced not just through legislation, but also through violence and the threat of violence. When you share an individual's experience and when you share individual after individual after individual after individual's experience, then it starts to come home to you. The idea of living with that level of stress all the time and having the fortitude and the determination and the strength to live your life in the face of that. And also the community that helped make it possible. I mean, I'm looking right now at Tab Mines' portrait and text panel, and he begins by saying, in the black community, kids were protected from mostly everything because that's the way we were brought up. So there was a whole community and network of people who were there to shield children as much as possible from the violence and the intimidation 
of the white supremacist world that they were living in. I think what's, what's transformative is to bring these stories into discourse, into this, this normative, this, this conventional discussion about what history is. There's no need for violence. There's no need for contest. There's need for listening. And the stories, the stories are here. Going back to what Ashley is saying, we can learn, we can know these stories, and through these stories, knit a robust, a thick narrative thread that you can't break. You know, as part of that, it's really interesting to witness the changes that Richmond is undergoing through the eyes and voices of these people, especially some of the older participants. For example, I think it was Mrs. Jackson living in Church Hill for her entire life and speaking as part of her story how it has changed and that the very tight-knit community where neighbors always help neighbors, you know, has dissipated to the point where it no longer is the same community. And of course, you, you expect some of that over time, you know, things are going to change, but there's a certain, well, disrespect, really, from people moving into the neighborhood and know, knowing little about it historically and sort of claiming it as their own right away. Would you not agree, Laura? I would completely agree. You know, Mary White Thompson has been an incredible activist and community organizer in Churchill for decades now. And she said the thing that hurt her most was the unfriendliness of her white neighbors. You know, the fact that they wouldn't say hello to her naturally on the street that they kept to themselves. I, I think the sense of displacement that she felt as a result, which I've heard from many other people, speaks to the fact that sometimes, you know, young white people move into a black neighborhood and are very happy to be living in a diverse neighborhood, but for them the diversity functions as colorful wallpaper, well, <laughs> in a sense. Well, history certainly repeats itself because that phenomenon of displacement is, you know, you hear that from many of these individuals, you know, happening 40 and 50 years ago. So that's something that hasn't changed. But I also think to go back to something that Josine Osborne talked about, you know, the fact that young people today growing up in the black communities of Richmond do not have that incredible support system in place. One of my biggest hopes for this exhibition is to connect the community of kids coming up now with these amazing mentors. And I think there's much more that could happen in terms of creating connections and real bonds between the youth and the older people in this exhibition who have learned so much and done so much over the course of their lifetimes. And that's my biggest hope for what this exhibition could help achieve. Well, thank you, Brian Palmer, Ashley Kistler, Thanks, and Laura Browder for being here today at the University of Richmond Museum to talk about this exhibition, Growing Up in Civil Rights Richmond. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
up in civil rights Richmond is on view at the University of Richmond Harnett Museum of Art through May 10th. You can find more information about the exhibition and related events on our website, lookthensee.com. You can also find all our past interviews, artist videos, a comprehensive visual arts calendar, and more. The Look See podcast is a production of Look See, an online forum for the art curious in Richmond and beyond. I'm Paige Goodpasture, and thanks for listening.